Well, Father, I do thank you for uh, this time that we can reflect on the reason why we celebrate Christmas. Father, I pray that this message will be a deep encouragement to all about your triumph over Christmas. Well, triumph over the enemy of Christmas. I pray that you help me to be clear. I pray that your words will um, really resonate in the hearts of all who hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here is a question for you. Who is regarded as the greatest Christmas villain? Greatest Christmas villain. Ebenezer Scrooge comes to mind. Mr. Potter. Hans Gruber. If you think Die Hard is a Christmas mover, it's very controversial. (laughs) But I think probably the... The bestest villain of them all is the Grinch, right? How the Grinch stole Christmas, right? You know the plot. I mean, the Grinch is this strange, green, cat-like, cave-dwelling hermit creature who has one friend in the world, and you're not really sure why he is so loyal, but that's his dog, Max. And he hates Christmas, right? He hates the feasting, the gift-giving, the singing, and all the noise, noise, noise. And that's what he really hates. And so one day, the Grinch, whose heart is two sizes too small, comes up with a glorious, genius idea that he will stop Christmas from coming. Disguised as Santa Claus, and you really have to work with the imagination there, he enters into Whoville and steals all the gifts and the trappings, all the feasting and the wrappings, And then he absconds with Christmas, but then he decides and discovers that he could not stop Christmas. It came. It came just the same. But did you know that there is some truth to the the story, that there is an enemy who actually tried to steal Christmas and tried to prevent it from coming? And it's not some sort of cave-like, cat-like, green creature Uh, It's actually something more nefarious. It's something that we see in Revelation chapter 12. Now, as you are turning to Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to give you a jet flight through Revelation to this point. After Jesus addresses the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, we see that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a time where Jesus will reveal himself to a world and reconquer it for his glory. And the means by which he will reconquer it is through a series of judgments. It begins with what's known as the seal judgments. These, uh, this is the, the first seven seals that are opened. The first four are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It starts off with the White Horse, which is a worldwide peace treaty orchestrated by the Antichrist. Then you have the Red Horse, which is the color of war. Then you have the Pale Horse, the color of famine. And then the Black Horse, I'm sorry, Pale Horse, the color of disease, and the Black Horse is the color of famine. Then you have the, the martyrs who cry out for justice. Then you have a great earthquake, and those are the first six seals. Then the seventh one opens, and you have seven trumpets. Now, between the seals and the trumpets, we have an interlude where we see that there's a massive revival, 
where there is a Jewish revival and you have 12,000 Jewish evangelists from each of the 12 tribes of, Jew, of, of Israel who reach the world and they start to uh, see a vast multitude come to Christ. And then there is the trumpet judgments. The trumpet judgments, it, it begins with a lethal storm that devastates a third of the earth's vegetation. Then you have a meteorite that devastates a third of the world's oceans. And then you have a third of the world's drinking water turning into blood. Then you have the Lord dimming the heavenly luminaries by a third. Then you have demon locust. Not quite sure what's going on there, but it sounds bad. <laughs> then you have a demonic army that kills a third of mankind. And then he's about to blow this, this seventh trumpet. And this will be truly the beginning of the end. And as John is revealing all of this, he, he receives some visions that help frame exactly what is happening. This is a time where, where not only will Jesus be revealed to the world, but John is about to reveal what's been going on since the dawn of time. And we see the ultimate worst Christmas villain. The enemy of Christmas is in John chapter, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 6. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, this is highly figurative imagery, but it points to a literal reality. And that is that there is a dark enemy of Christmas. You can even call it a red enemy. Right? It's the dragon. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. And, and sometimes in this naturalistic world, we can forget that there are really such things as demons, and there is such a being as Satan, who seeks to destroy Christmas. And he attempted to do it, first of all, not by raiding a village and taking all the Christmas trappings and wrappings, but by killing Christ. You see, a lot of times when you look at Christmas, Christmas is a time of coming together as a family. It's a time to be comforted by the good things that the Lord has given us. For some people, Christmas is a time of seasonal depression. It's the first time you, you might be celebrating Christmas without that one person in your life who used to be there. But I want to give another nuance to Christmas, that Christmas is a time of victory. We often celebrate Easter because Easter's victory, right? That's Jesus conquering the grave. Christmas is when 
Jesus conquered the best efforts of Satan to take him out. This is the triumph of Christmas. So this is what we're going to do. Given that this is kind of a, uh, a figurative piece of scripture, it's a prophecy, it's, it's basically a revealing of what's already happened, we're going to look at the characters first, then we'll go into the plot, and then we're going to examine the implications. And in all of this, we're going to see the defeat of the enemy of Christmas. So we'll look at the, the characters first. Now, look at verse 1 through 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, there's some controversy about this, like who, who is this woman? Could it be Mary, right? She gave birth to Jesus, and that might be a candidate, but when you see the reference to, let's say, the the sun and the moon and the stars, a knowledgeable reader of Scripture would go back to another vision. Remember Joseph? Joseph kept on having all these visions and telling them to his brothers and to his family. He wasn't necessarily endearing himself to them, but one of the visions is recorded in Genesis 37, 9 through 10. Now, he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Now notice he has a dream. And Joseph has it interpreted for him by his father, right? So the son would be Israel, Jacob, right? The moon would be his wife, and then the stars would be his brothers. All of that kind of points this whole vision and revelation to this being the nation of Israel. And there is a lot of Jewish emphasis in this book, right? You have 12 tribes that each produce 12,000 evangelists in uh, Revelation chapter 7, right? All of this is about the restoration, the gradual redeeming of Israel. So that is Israel. They are the woman. Then you have the dragon. This is a little bit easier. In 3 through 4, then I saw another sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, what is this dragon? Any guesses? Satan. And we know that from verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil. Isn't it interesting how the serpent is never identified as Satan in Genesis? But at the end of the story, his identity is clear, right? The serpent of old is none other than the dragon. It is Satan, who deceives the whole world, who has thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is the... The one who was created good, 
but fell and took a third with him. Now, as far as red, what does red mean? Well, red is the color of war. Remember the red horse of the apocalypse? That was war. But then you get into this whole business of seven heads, right? What do the seven heads mean? Well, in Revelation 17, 10, we see a scarlet beast. Scarlet is another color for red. And it says this, and there were seven kings. This is where the seven heads are decoded. There were seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and another has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So who are these seven kings, these seven rulers? Well, when you go to Revelation of the Old Testament, Daniel, chapter 2, verses 32 to 33, this is the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. Remember how he falls asleep, has this vision, and he wants somebody to interpret it for him, and he sees this, this statue He says, the head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet of iron and partly of clay. Now we learn later on, this is decoded for us, that the gold represents Babylon. Okay, that is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The next, the the silver is Medo-Persia, that's the kingdom that comes after Babylon. And then the belly and the thighs are Greece. The legs of iron represent Rome. And then the feet made of clay and iron, you know, very fragile kingdom. That would be a revived Roman Empire, right? Seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. So this is the yet to come. Now, as far as the other two, well, the ones that are not mentioned that are traditionally associated with the enemies of Israel are Egypt and Assyria. So in order, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then revived Rome. Seven kingdoms that all have one thing in common, and that is the oppression of Israel, the oppression of the Jews. Really, from the beginning, Satan has always opposed Israel, and there's a reason for it, because Israel will one day sire a child that will take him out, and so here we have the male child. Any guesses on him? Rhymes with Mises. (laughs) And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in and his throne. Now, obviously, this is Jesus. And one of the ways that we know for sure is that term rod of iron is used later on in Revelation 19, 11 through 15. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. Right? This is none other than Jesus Christ. 
a child born who will rule with a rod of iron. He will extract his vengeance. He will reclaim his kingdom. So those are the characters, Satan, Israel, and Jesus. Now we turn to the plot. Now, have any of you guys ever seen The Lion King? Okay. If you haven't, that's too bad because I'm going to spoil it for you. But you remember Scar is the sinister brother of uh, Mufasa who plots to kill his brother so that he can take over the Pride Lands. So not only does he kill his brother, he spooks Mufasa's son, Simba, into believing that he was responsible for his father's death and he is exiled away. Naturally, Scar does a terrible job of ruling the Pride Lands, and so friends come and seek for Simba and try to persuade him into returning to claim his throne as the Lion King. And then, you know, some musical numbers and acts of violence, Simba wins and Scar is gone. Now, this was always hailed as an original story, but, you know, it actually follows a, a, a template that was very familiar to many of the people back then, the, the story of the usurper, right, where some enemy rises up and seeks to take a throne that does not belong to them, but to claim the throne, they have to get rid of the heir to the throne, and so they seek to kill the child, but the child is tucked away and is then brought back at the proper time to reclaim his throne. That is essentially what we are seeing here. So with that in mind, let's look at verses 1 through 2. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. So this is the nation of Israel who is writhing in agony. One of my favorite Christmas carols reads this. I'm not going to sing it because I don't sing in public. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Israel has suffered throughout their history. Remember when there was a famine and Joseph managed to bring them back, well, not back, brought them into Egypt so that they might live? And there they stayed for 400 years and Towards the end, it was a dire situation, but God eventually delivered them from Egypt and placed them in the promised land. But in the promised land, because of their unfaithfulness, well, what happened? Well, there were armies invading. Eventually, they succumbed to the Babylonians where they were exiled for 70 years, and then they were returned. And even though they returned to the promised land, they were not in charge of the promised land, and they had to live under secular rulers from that point on. And then in AD 70, tragedy of all tragedies, well, it, Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. They decided to quash the rebellion. And so here we have the story of, of the Jewish people who have always been subject to the oppression of the enemies. I mean, even today... Right? The most hated people on earth are the Jews. Sad to say, what happened in Nazi Germany, the pogroms of Russia, they were blamed for the Black Death, but even today there's anti-Semitism on the left and the right. So why? Why is there so much hatred 
of the Jews. You ever thought about that? Well, part of that is because of the opposition of Satan. Because when Satan led the rebellion, he deceived Eve. And in response, God gives the following curse. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Satan has been informed that from this woman will come a son who will eventually crush you. He will wound his heel, but he'll survive. You won't. But in the meantime, Satan is enjoying his present dominion over this world. He is the ruler of the world. Remember when, when Satan tempts Jesus? He took him to that high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these I'll give to you if you bow to me. Was that a genuine offer? Sure seems that way. In John 14, 30, Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He is the ruler of the world. That's Satan. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies, present tense, in the power of the evil one. Satan is alive and well. He rules this world. So, why does he hate Israel? Because from Israel will come a son, a Messiah, who will crush him, who will defeat him. And like any greedy despot, he wants to keep hold of his power. And so there's always been this epic struggle between Satan and children. Eve begot a son, Cain and Abel. And then Cain, under the influence of Satan, rose up and killed Abel. You had the baby boys who were born in Egypt, and the Pharaoh sent death squads to try to execute the baby boys. David played the harp for Saul, and Saul was filled with an unclean spirit and tried to murder David under the influence of Satan. But at the birth of Christ, you see the most diabolical plot. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And he said to him, they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child. And when you have found him, report him to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Villain laugh. Ooh, ha, ha, ha. Right? That's how I told it to my kids. 
right? Was, he knew who was going to be born. And just like Herod wanted to hold on to his reign, Satan seeks to hold on to his. So he moves through Herod. And in verse 16, we discover then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Right? Can you, can you imagine a king so hungry for power that he's willing to send his own soldiers to murder all baby boys? That's the fanaticism of Satan. But you know what? Satan did have some success. He did have some success. In verse 5, we read on in Revelation chapter 12, and her child was caught up to, the, to God and his throne. Now that word caught up is actually used in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. That's the rapture. Right? The idea is he was, the church is snatched to be with the Lord. In this case, the son who Satan seeks to murder is caught up. He is brought up into the heaven. Acts 1.12, the angels tell the men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Right? Jesus ascends into heaven. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Right? Jesus ascended into heaven, but before he ascended into heaven, something else had to happen, right? He was betrayed by a disciple who was filled or possessed by Satan. Handed him over, received an unjust trial. The crowds turned on him. He would be crucified. It wasn't enough just to kill him. They had to humiliate and embarrass him so that no one would take him seriously from that point on. But then, three days later, he rose from the dead. But that's not all. Forty days after that, he rose into the heavens. He is now with the Lord. So the woman fled into the wilderness where she was where she has a place prepared by God, right? So the child was caught up. He is in heaven. We read that there's going to be a time that's elapsed, roughly three and a half years. And the woman who, who gave birth, Israel, during this time of tribulation, will go into the wilderness where she will be protected. She will be protected during the second half of the tribulation. And then we look at verse 17, and so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so 
Israel, who at this point in the tribulation hasn't completely embraced the Messiah, they are set aside and they are protected. And so what the dragon does is he makes war against all of the followers of Jesus Christ who remain on the earth during that time. I mean, what you see is a, is a picture of a fanatical desire to murder and kill. If I can't get Jesus, I'm going to attack those who love him. If I can't get Jesus, I'm going to attack those who are loved by Jesus. That is the hatred that he has. And so Satan's always had a predilection to want to murder children. You ever thought about that? I'm sure if the technology was there, he would have erected a Planned Parenthood center in Nazareth and Bethlehem. He hates children. Children are the cause of grief for him. From the seed of a woman will come a Savior who will crush him in the end. But in the end, he is defeated here, right? The plot is thwarted, and he is in the death throes trying to make war on the rest of the offspring. But as the Jews are waiting in that desert place where they are protected, there's going to be a revival that will take place, and it's foreseen in Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. What they're going to see on that glorious day is the sky will be open and they will look and they'll see the one who was pierced. You know, the, the Jews are defined by many things, right? Eating kosher, celebrating the Sabbath. But many of them don't even do that. But there's one thing that defines them. And that is, we believe in the Messiah, but it's not Jesus. But on that day, they're going to look up they will see Jesus and say, we got this all wrong. There'll be weeping. There'll be contrition. At that moment, Israel will be saved, embrace their Messiah. And then their Messiah will come and he will kick some cosmic tail. We read about it in Revelation 19, 19, 20 through 22, 20 verse 2. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting. When people think about Jesus, they think about him having, you know, telling stories to children healing the sick, touching the lepers, a very gentle soul. But gentleness is strength restrained. Here's another picture of Jesus that we see. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Right? Can you, can you just imagine he is there up in heaven, about to descend. He looks down, and the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet are all going to say, we're going to fight to the death. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Incidentally, it's not like he's shooting swords. That's a metaphor to the command, take them out. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of an abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He uses his rod of iron to imprison him for a thousand years. And when that is done, he will execute him once and for all. That's the plot. Satan tried to kill Jesus, succeeded, but Jesus conquered death, rose from the dead, and now he is actually waiting in heaven where he will reclaim his kingdom. Now, there's some serious implications with this. One, there is a narrative out there in our society that we need to do these things, achieve... um, Meet these goals, follow this agenda to be on the right side of history. You guys ever heard that? That's how people who don't believe in God can justify some sort of transcendence. History. Well, what's history? When you look at this and you see that Jesus died, rose again, and ascended and is in heaven, this is the end of history. This is when Jesus will come back and make everything right. Now, as I mentioned, sometimes Christmas is rightly associated with, with suffering. You think about how Christmas might be, this might be your first Christmas without somebody you love. It might be the first Christmas where you endure some broken relationship. Maybe this is a Christmas that's not that fun because you're sick and it stinks. This might be a Christmas where cancer is seems to be ruining your Christmas. All of that is a result of the fall, and the fall was a result of Satan deceiving Eve and then Adam following that lead. When we think about Christmas, it's also a time when we remember how Satan tried to kill Christmas by killing Christ but was unsuccessful. Satan Satan wanted to kill Jesus as a baby, but God has his reasons for making sure that Jesus lived the full duration of his life. Teaching, preaching, explaining, so that he can be the perfect sacrifice. And as much as Satan knows that he is doomed, he still fights it. But when we look at this prophecy about the future, everything is going according to plan. All the heartbreak and suffering that you're experiencing right now will one day come to a glorious end. And Christmas is a celebration of that reality. The second implication is that Satan is real. 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? He is out there, he is present, and he actually hates you. But in 1 Peter 5, 9, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. We also read that in 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus came and he crushed the head of Satan. Satan is in the throes of death right now. 
Martin Luther wrote, The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I think about how Jesus is in heaven right now and how all the horses of his heavenly host are in alignment. All the armies are prepared for battle. And Jesus is raising his hand and he says, at my signal, right? That is where we are right now. At my signal, he will come back and he will make all things right. You look at the evil in this world, the murder of unborn children, the confusion that's taught to children. You look at how many people are victimized by evil agendas and evil purposes and injustice. And Jesus is up there at my signal. And he will come back and reclaim what is his. Because he triumphed over his enemy. But there's another implication. There's a famous movie line that says, the greatest, trick the, ever, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Now, some of you are, are listening to this and thinking, Satan's maiden. Stop with this superstitious hocus-pocus. Well, could it be that you have been deceived into thinking that Satan doesn't exist? And, and if you've been deceived into thinking it doesn't exist, and Satan wants you to believe that he doesn't exist, then you're essentially bending your will to the will of Satan. I think a lot of times when we think about somebody who is serving Satan, we think that only Satanists serve Satan. But the fact of the matter is, there's really two rulers in this universe. The ruler of this world and the king of all kings, right? You either follow God and his son Jesus Christ, or you are a servant and subject to Satan. So here's, here's the question. Which side are you on? Now, some of you are clearly on God's side. You have been born again, redeemed. You serve the Lord. And I doubt that there's anybody here, unless maybe your parents bribed you or something like that, who is an actual Satan worshiper. But then there's this whole nebulous, like, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't serve Christ, but I'm not a Satan worshiper. Well, here's a question. When you tell yourself, I'm not sure if the Bible is true, you believe Satan's lies. Uh, when you tell yourself, I think I'm good enough to go to heaven, you believe Satan's gospel. When you tell yourself, I'll become a Christian later, you submit to Satan's timetable. Right? Satan wants you to think that you are actually the master of your own life because he's fine with you being led by anything but Jesus. You see, when you do that, whether you know it or not, you're not following Christ, you're following Satan. And when you look at the character of Satan, who's a murderer, a child killer, has no pity, no kindness, the Grinch of all Grinches, he wants your soul, he wants you to suffer eternal torment with him. So here's, here's the question. You know, this Christmas, ask yourself, which side am I on? Am I going to be the victor with Jesus? And I'm going to be crushed with those who don't embrace Jesus. In Romans 16, 20, 
Paul tells the Roman church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your seat. Did you catch that? Those who align with Jesus, who give their lives to Jesus, who surrender to Jesus, will join Jesus in crushing Satan once and for all. So as we celebrate Christmas, celebrate many things. Celebrate to get the family, the comfort, the consolation of Israel, but also celebrate the victory that is to come. Our time will come. He's ready. And we'll be there with him to crush Satan underneath our feet. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for the victory of Christmas. We're grateful for Revelation that tells us the story of what was, what is, and what is to come. And I pray for anyone here who, you know, deep down they know that their life has not been governed by Christ, that you'll use this message to steer them to be completely surrendered to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray that this message will be comforting to many people who feel like, you know, this dark world's getting the best of them. Death has torn people away, destroyed relationships, that they might look forward to that day when Jesus will come and make all things right, and that will give them great comfort in the victory to come. In Jesus' name, amen.